0: Coke Koch Scholar family and friends, welcome to The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of how Koch scholars around the world are igniting positive change. This season features amazing panels of scholar experts discussing interesting and timely topics. My name is Aisha Shepi, and I'm excited to lead you through this season. I'm a proud 2020 Koch Scholar, originally from Miami, Florida, and now a junior at Princeton University studying medical anthropology. I also have my own podcast called The Hybrid Podcast. For those who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We're so glad you're here. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school seniors across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. There are now over 6,000 Coke Scholars creating positive change around the world. If you wanna learn more, you can visit their website, coca scholarsfoundationorg Something that makes the Koch Scholars Program so unique is the incredible community of alumni. Seriously, could you imagine working together with Koch Scholars? To open season three, we've brought together Jorge Casimiro, Jarvis Sam, and Roslyn Kennedy. Three Koch Scholars who work together at Nike in Portland, Oregon to discuss sustainability, DEI, leading with purpose, and more. Let's get to know our panelists. Jorge Casimiro, a 1994 Koch scholar, serves as Nike's vice president and chief public policy and social impact officer, as well as president of the Nike Foundation. His team drives Nike's global government relations, public affairs, and social impact strategies, as well as the integration of Nike's purpose-driven work to unite the world through sport. Before joining Nike, Jorge held prominent roles across government affairs, communications, social responsibility, and general management at the Coca-Cola Company. Jarvis Sam, a 2009 scholar, is Vice President of Global Diversity and Inclusion at Nike Incorporated. His team is focused on driving diverse representation, inclusive leader and social justice education, professional development, and the ecosystem of promoting and creating a culture of belonging inside and outside of Nike. Prior to Nike, Jarvis worked as the Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Snap Inc, where he was accountable for building the company's first-ever diversity and inclusion strategy. Leading this discussion is 1997 scholar Roslyn Kennedy. Rosalind heads communications and partnerships for Nike's social and community impact. A two-time national Emmy winner, she has 20 years of corporate communications, television production, and journalism experience at some of the most well-known and beloved brands, TV shows, and organizations in the world. These include The Dr. Oz Show, Coca-Cola Company, Google, Ancestry.com, and now Nike. And now, here are Jorge, Jarvis, and Roslyn.
1: Okay, welcome Jarvis, welcome Jorge. How are you both?
2: Doing well. Great to be here.
1: Absolutely. Well, well, I am so excited to get to chat with you for this episode of the SIP, the official Coca-Cola Scholars podcast. We are going to have so much fun having a little chat today um, and just really looking forward to hearing from both of you about what you do, who you are, and how lucky am I to get to work with both of you here at Nike. So um, with that, why don't we just get started? We're going to jump right in. Jorge, we'll start with you. Um, why don't you share what it is that you do here at Nike bring that life to work about
2: what you're driving every day. All right, thanks, Ross. So, you know, I have this competition, friendly competition going with with you, with Jarvis, with others. I think I've got the best job at Nike, actually. Um, But, you know, having said that, it's really about this intersection of business, public policy, and social impact. And so what's our role as Nike in that? In 200 countries around the world, 76,000 employees, um, and just everything that's going on in the world, and just a really exciting time to be able to do that with one of the best teams in the
1: business. I mean, it is a pretty fun job when you hear it, when I mean, <laughs> you can describe that way for sure. Okay, Jarvis, talk for hey. tell him what your job is.
3: I got to tell you, Jorge knows this. There's stiff competition. I certainly feel I have the best job at Nike. I have the great pleasure and privilege of leading our diversity, equity, and inclusion organization for Nike. And so similar to what Jorge mentioned for our 76,000 teammates, my team focuses on key topics like representation, education, and community building to foster the creation of a culture of belonging and to position, whether across our geographies, our retail teammates, those in corporate or otherwise, our continued commitment to how we're celebrating, diverse voices, and creating opportunity, impact, and a platform for marginalized communities around the globe.
1: I mean, it's so clear that between the two worlds that you're both driving, this is such high impact. It's never a more important time, I think, um, for this type of work. And what's so fun about my role at Nike is that I get to actually bridge those worlds and help to share a lens of storytelling around what it is that we're doing. And So I lead communications and partnerships for our social and community impact. And so I have the pr- immense privilege, not only working at Nike, but getting to partner closely with both of you and taking that work that you're driving and helping to share what it is with communities within Nike and then externally as well. Um, so it is it is a lot of fun. I'm the newest person to Nike on this on this call. Um, I started during this uh, crazy ongoing time of the pandemic. So, you know, Zoom is a very comfortable, happy space for me because this is how I get to interact with you and our other colleagues. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's really, it's really lovely to be able to chat with you all. Um, and now I want to, I want to kick us back a little old school. Jarvis, let's go. Let's go way back. I want to hear your scholar class. I want to hear where you went to school, what you studied, and what you thought you were going to be when you grew up.
3: Yeah, I am a proud graduate of Rice University, where I studied history, public policy, and sport management for undergrad. And I was actually in the scholar class of 2009. Uh, At the time when I joined and was a Coca-Cola scholar, I really thought I was going to be an attorney. So I was very well set on going to law school. I thought that I wanted to do sports and entertainment law. Uh, But as as life and fate would have it, I ended up finding another path that connects me with a lot of lawyers actually more often than I expected (laughs) and actually added a lot of clarity for me that I made the right choice.
1: And uh, tell me more about that. So you thought you were going to be a lawyer. How does a I think I'm going to be a lawyer translate into working and leading DE&I at a company like Nike?
3: Yeah, you know, throughout my my Scholar's Summit, there were a ton of us that were anticipating law school and were sharing stories on how we plan to engage and what we're going to study throughout four-year undergraduate education, and then ultimately what law school we wanted to go to. But throughout my period and tenure at Rice, a lot of that changed. You know, I started to find what I was really passionate about. I did speech and debate for about 10 years and then coached for several years after undergrad, And what I found was that while those skill sets translate really well into courtroom practice and particularly in litigation, for me, I also knew that there were opportunities to use that core skill set to evangelize a lot of the work that I had done around public policy, around history, to rethink how we think about corporate workplaces in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I didn't quite make those connections immediately. Right after undergrad, I actually started my career as a strategy consultant with Deloitte, doing a lot of work in their telecommunications and oil and gas practice. And that also helped to clarify a lot for me around things that I didn't want to do and uh, where I could really harness the passion and potential to do great work, but Ross, I found myself so actively involved in Deloitte's affinity groups or business resource groups. And that's where I found my energy and skill set was being best utilized on like more firm eminence work. And so when the opportunity came up actually to make the transition from Deloitte into the technology industry, I saw a clear pathway for how DE&I could be better integrated to think about both workforce and workplace diversity more broadly.
1: I love that because I think that, you
3: know, it's amazing how much this space has changed
1: in this relatively short time and how industries look at it. And I think about you early on in your career as a consultant working for Deloitte and how the affinity groups really, I think unearthed a passion probably that you then really articulated how you wanted to translate that professionally to today where that is, I think has become one of the most critical and emerging spaces within the companies that you know we work for and at the industry wide level. So it's, it's just super fascinating. Jorge, I'm gonna flip it over to you. Um, A scholar year, where did you study? What did you study? And how did that help prepare you for who you are today and what you do here at Nike?
2: All right, so um, let's see, scholar year, 1994. Uh, So that's when I graduated high school and I studied at Brown University. And I'll say, I had no idea what Brown University was gonna be like. Um, And to this day, I credit it with so much of my success. Um, You know, my parents are immigrants. Uh, you know, went to school, went to high school, was in Catholic school for you know most of my life. And to go from that environment to a place like Brown was was very different. And, you know, like most children of immigrants, I was going to be a doctor, I was gonna be a lawyer or an engineer. Not that uh, my parents know what an engineer does necessarily, but it sounds good, right? And so I studied pre-med. I studied pre-med for three out of my four years at Brown and it was funny when I when I switched. All my friends said, "We knew you weren't going to do this." I was like, "What do you mean you knew? Why did you let me take genetics and anatomy and physiology and organic chemistry before telling me?" Yes,
1: why didn't they tell you before you registered for those classes?
2: Right? It was nuts, you know. But that's also where what I appreciate about the Brown curriculum was that I was able to take all these other classes. And so when I made that decision at the end of my, you know, four years. Uh, I looked at it and I had enough courses to actually qualify for our public policy concentration. And it was something that I realized I really enjoyed and I was, I happened to be good at it. And I said, okay, so now what do I do with this? So then I thought back to what my parents always told me was like, okay, I guess I'll be a lawyer. So I took LSATs. Um, and then thankfully I was saved because uh, The graduate program at Rutgers in public policy sent me a letter and said, Hey, uh, if you apply, we'll take your LSAT score in lieu of your GRE. And more importantly, they offered me a scholarship. So it was a full ride. And after four years of working and loans and everything else and scholarships like the one from Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation, I was looking for a free ride. I was like, I was gonna (laughs) put my hands up for that. And uh, it it really then just exposed me to this entire world of public policy and how we can make a difference in the world. And that led me to think more about brands. And so when I think about my career, you know, I was at Coca-Cola for 12 years, I've been at Nike for nine years. I actually worked at Brown University for a couple of years after grad school. I worked in the US Congress. These are all just incredible brands if you think about it. So how can I take my time and effort and energy and work in an organization that can amplify and catalyze that work, so that the impact is greater than the input that I'm putting into it. And uh, as I, you know, look back on 20 plus years of corporate jobs, it's it's exactly that. And I have found a, just a great opportunity to be able to do that to have fun while I'm doing it. And you know, to something that Jarvis was talking about, the affinity groups, I really wasn't part of many affinity groups early on in my career. I actually started getting more and more engaged about five, six years ago here at Nike. Um, And, you know, today I'm the executive sponsor of our Latino and Latina Friends employee network and work very closely with Jarvis. So that's another hat that I wear. And as a matter of fact, earlier today, we were on another Zoom call with our other executive sponsors talking about the Latino experience at Nike. So I really see it all coming together. And it's great that, you know, the three of you are here. We're not the only Coke scholars at Nike. There are several other Coke scholars at Nike. So it's really fun to see how all these different threads in my life and in my career have come together at a moment like this.
1: Yeah, it really weaves together, I think, a bit extraordinary fabric. And we're gonna we're gonna dig into that more because there's I think there's just so much there. Um, but I want you, Russ. Tell us about oh, you. Yeah, well, I can I can share a little bit. It's it's really fun having this conversation, especially because you know, you kind of know the broad strokes of oh, we have these things in common, but I'm learning more even in just this call, and I feel like I know you both already. So also <laughs> a former um, definitely a child of immigrants who thought, okay, I'm either going to be a doctor or a lawyer, took the LSAT, thought I was going to be a lawyer, went all the way up to, got into law school, got a scholarship, deferred it for a year, deferred it for a second year, tried to defer it for a third year. And the dean of the law school called me and said, hey, are you sure you really want to come? And I said, you know what, <laughs> I at that point. But I fast forward, um, I start, I, well, the I'm class of 97 so scholar year 97 um I also went to Brown University so Jorge and I have that in common Jarvis we're going to come back to you on that front too because Jarvis is also soon to be a graduate of Brown University as well so super fun shout out to all my Bruno pals here um go Bears uh I you know Ran the whole path, the daughter of a doctor and a nurse, thought maybe I'd be a doctor, come back to my community, then thought maybe, okay, I, I don't think I'm going to do that, I think I'm going to go be a lawyer. And after I graduated from university, um, I realized that I was, I was very, I've always been a storyteller, I've, I was an English major, loved um, just writing and, and reading and I always just have had an insatiable curiosity about the world. And so I found myself um, in journalism. I took a job at the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather was the host at the time. My first job uh, out of school in this big news organization was answering the phones, running errands, like trying to get a man (laughs) on the streets, handing over the, running the, fixing the coffee machine, just like a kind of a gal Friday, Um, but worked my way up in the newsroom and stayed at CBS News in 60 Minutes, went to CNN. I did a stint at a daytime talk show and had been thinking for a while about making that shift over from the journalism side to the corporate communication side. And always fascinated with Brands that um, stand up for their values and make a difference. And so I found my way through Coke Scholars back to Coca-Cola on a professional front and then moved through the tech world similar to Jarvis. We we, um, both have Google on our our, uh, alumna background as well. Um, And and now find myself at Nike. So just, but, you know, it's always with that same thread of, of storytelling, of, how can you shine a light on important things, help people and audiences understand it in a way that is, is simple and impactful. Um, and so I just, I feel really lucky to be here at this time doing that. Jarvis, you're, in addition to being uh, in such a high profile role and as busy as you are, you are also going to school while doing all this. Um, I mentioned that you are seen to be a Brown alum. Tell us about Deciding to go back to school, what that experience has been like, balancing that is. I know there are a lot of folks listening that are grappling with a: uh, Do I go back to graduate school? What should it be? How do I balance it? Tell us more about that.
3: Yeah, balance was the big question, Roz. But you know, I ultimately made the decision. It was the right moment in time for me. So I am proudly studying uh, in a dual degree program, actually uh, through Brown and then IE University out of Madrid. And the degree program really finds itself at the intersection of business as well as key uh, constructions in humanities and social sciences. So we take a lot of coursework on things ranging from health disparities and the impact on business to climate change at the intersection of society and business And then, of course, some of your more traditional courses like financial accounting and financial management, which are are really testing my wits, but I'm keeping up. And and the bright side is I feel like I understand things like Nike's earnings calls much more. So that's super helpful uh, in that regard. But, you know, the decision to go back, I was born and raised into a single parent household with just my mom and my siblings. And when I take a look at both my maternal side of my family and my paternal side of the family, My siblings and I were the first three to complete an undergraduate degree. And obviously helped a lot with the provisions provided by um, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation, as well as a variety of other scholarships and then connection and commitment from Rice. But when I look at those various generations, no one yet has a graduate degree. And so when I think about my why, it's somewhat connected to professional growth and development, but not necessarily required for, for my role. My primary reason for pursuing graduate education, was to show my now five nephews and one niece what is possible in terms of education. I believe that education is such a critical prerequisite to growth, development and opportunity. And quite frankly, the achieving of education, whether it is a high school diploma, a GED, an associate's degree, a law degree, a medical degree, or a PhD, once you have that, that's you. Your hard work pays off and it becomes a part of what you've worked for. And so I recognized from the very beginning when I started my program early last year that it was gonna be hard work in balancing what for many looked like the thrust of chaos around conversations connected to Black Lives Matter, hashtag stop Asian hate, the need to amplify the voices of Hispanic and Latino communities. And finally, not only us as a company, but the world having conversations around how we integrate native and indigenous populations. It's easy to get pulled in so many different directions. But for me, I knew that if I joined a cohort of people who are acting as business leaders in a variety of different companies all around the world, and I could leverage my voice and the platform that I have and have built and created here at Nike to influence and inspire my 50 plus classmates, and then also take a lot of learnings from them of how are they navigating these topics, for example, in Argentina. We have some teammates that are from Russia and the Ukraine and so are navigating some really powerful conversations right now around the political landscape there. That interchange of information has actually helped me to do my job even better and that it's equipped me with a stronger understanding not only of global landscapes and how work is functioning in different geopolitical and geosocial spheres, but also some of the coursework like climate change at the intersection of business and society has inspired a new field of focus that I'm really actively working on and excitedly working on with our chief sustainability officer, Noel Kinder around climate justice and environmental sustainability and how we think about the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion and inclusion programs in the space of climate. And so while balance remains the key question, I am anxiously uh, excited for May 29th, where I will go to Providence, walk across the stage in front of my family, and really just achieve so many goals personally and professionally.
1: Well, we are so proud of you. I am in awe of all that you're balancing, balance being that operative word. I'm sure it doesn't always feel like it is. But it's, uh, I think it's really, it's so inspiring, first of all, um, I love hearing how you've articulated what it means and, and how we earn, I, you know, I talked before about being curious, and I think that, you know, learning is a lifelong pursuit, right? The, the study of leadership is a lifelong journey of, of learning and education. Um, there's something so powerful of that moment of walking across the stage and getting that diploma in hand and I just I can't wait to be cheering you on I hope it gets to be but if not I'll definitely be tuned in for that virtual moment um or hey what brought you to Nike what what is it what is it about here and now and if you can bring to life a little bit of that you know Jarvis started talking a little bit about that intersectionality that connection of What it is that Nike stands for. Would love love to hear from you uh, a bit about Nike's capital P purpose.
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's two things really. One is when I think about what Nike has been doing for the last 50 years, so this year we're we're celebrating our 50th anniversary, and even go to our mission statement, and we all know mission statements, they're much more than words on the paper. It really is how you organize yourselves and the values around what you try to do in the world. And our mission statement is to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete in the world. And then there's an asterisk on the word athlete. And it says, if you have a body, you're an athlete. I think that's one of the most powerful, most inclusive mission statements that exists out there today. And to be a part of an organization that is trying to bring that to life is absolutely incredible and inspiring. The second thing is, you know, during the interviews, I was meeting with my then boss and what she told me was, you know, we're trying to grow up. We're trying to grow up. Uh, We don't know what we want to be fully when we grow up, but for a brand like Nike, um, and at the time it was 41 years old, right? And not to be a, you know, a tech company like we see so many, you know, quote unquote, younger tech companies, but to have a brand like Nike and at the time only be 41 years old compared to where I just come from at Coca-Cola, where we started in 1886, it was this phenomenal opportunity to help shape the future, to help create that path for what business can do in society. And that has been my experience every single day. No two days are alike. But when we think about those questions, whether it's Russia and the Ukraine, as Jarvis was just talking about, whether it's you know, the rise of employee activism. I mean, in my nine years at Nike, our employee population has grown by 50%, percent five zero. So think about that just from a company perspective and working with employees and teammates all over the world. When you grow by 50%, what that looks like. And as we look at our next 50 years thinking about digital, you know, we're we're all talking about digital, we're all talking about the metaverse. I've got my VR glasses over here that I got myself for Christmas this year just to try to understand it a little bit better. And back to that constant curiosity, right? Number one, it's I need to understand what that's all about and learn about it. But, you know, number two, it's not just the future, it's it's today it's today. And so thinking about how do we navigate from a business perspective, all of the different business and policy and employee and equity questions around the metaverse, like talk about an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. And not just by myself, but with teammates across Nike, like you, Roz, like Jarvis, like others, that to me is one of the most powerful things. You know, we have a Maxim at Nike that we win as a team, and that to me is another reason why I stay because it really is about teamwork and about how we bring it all together because we can't do it on our own.
1: Speaking of teamwork, and I I love that maxim is I think it it's so authentic to Nike. Also, I mean, obviously, you know, just grounded and rooted in sport, um, but you know, winning as a team. I think has evolved and changed. Um, the makeup of a team has changed so much. Jarvis, you have taken on these responsibilities and it's dovetailed at a just a, I think a time of reckoning um, in society. You know, you, you've referenced some of the movements that have just happened in quick turn. Um, tell me a little bit about your perspective on one, what it's like at this moment in time to be driving this work, mm-hmm. and then two, um, how we navigate listening to everybody who is an athlete, you know, our, our consumers, the people that are really telling us that, hey, I don't want to shop uh, at brands that I don't believe in and that I feel like aren't making an impact here. I just would, would love to hear your perspective on how we how we address their concerns and reach reach them and continue our work forward, too.
3: Yeah, it's such a great question, Ross. You know, now more than ever, there's some really great stats that have been done by Bloomberg, McKinsey, and others, specifically talking about the words diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've seen an increase over 300% of the amount of times that those words were mentioned in company earnings calls than in the years prior to the May 25th, 2020 murder of George Floyd. It has reached a point where it is so nascent to the way that we have to do business. And then I think a lot of companies are finally jumping on board with a stronger understanding of how diversity, equity, and inclusion should come to the table. Some of the the key challenges that exist in the space right now is the reckoning offered an opportunity for us to finally understand what equity is. And equity really is twofold. It's one, it requires us to understand where we as a corporation may have been complicit with the marginalization of specific communities. And then two, it requires us to be a part of the solution, moving beyond just problem identification, but actually saying, how do I see this opportunistically to view my business as requisite? to being able to drive forward these agenda items. And so you're even seeing people communicate about DEI very differently than before, where oftentimes it was treated so deeply programmatically or initiative-based, you're seeing people have conversations deeply embedded in talent, in business operations, in connection to the consumer. And that's what I think is gonna be the, the greatest component that drives this work forward. I talk a lot at Nike about the need for congruence, that of identifying, that our consumers, at a lot of cases, desire to be our employees, and our employees are our consumers. What that means is that we must obsess this construct of congruence around the experience for both of those populations. Furthermore, we have been a company that has been celebrated for years in the space of product innovation. The question is, how then do we take that same rigor of product innovation and deploy it in terms of social innovation? And this is where a lot of the work that happens within our broader purpose umbrella, so in Jorge's world, namely in social and community impact, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then global sustainability, help us to drive that work more effectively. But our goal is then how do we not only position it, look to the impact that it's having on specific communities and populations, while also underscoring that with ensuring that everybody sees this work as their job, and then finally, understanding how do we measure the impact. Roz, the second part of your question I think is so critical. Between May 25th, 2020, and June 19th, 2020, we saw so many companies release emails, make commitments about things like representation, financial commitments, and otherwise. And then several, for the first time ever, celebrate Juneteenth. Then, of course, a year later, it was positioned as a national holiday. The sad reality is that for a lot of marginalized communities, there's a feeling that that rigor, that that intentionality is gone. And that while companies may have focused time, energy, and resources in that moment, that a lot of that same conversation is no longer happening. At Nike, we've been on our journey of diversity, equity, and inclusion for a number of years. And the work that we positioned in June of 2020 was merely used to catalyze that work. We recognize that giving the growing buying power and impact that Hispanic and Latino communities have Given the deep connection that the Black community has always had as cultural contributors to the brand and so many other populations, it's critical that we start to understand and think through the work from a perspective of consumer and employee centricity. This is going to mean understanding the various intersections of experience that these communities have recognizing that a queer woman is not just a part of her female identity. She is not just part of her queer identity. If she's a race or ethnic minority, all of those attributes impact how she navigates the world and how we have to think about perspective there. And so by focusing our attention there even more, we're able to define clear approaches to how we leverage equity to impact communities through advocacy at their own level and on their own terms, to hopefully create a better future. The one caveat is that we all have to act in a spirit of solidarity. We cannot view it from a perspective that a win for Asian and Pacific Islander communities somehow means something is taken away from individuals with disabilities. Rather, we have to understand that by growing the pie, we can truly all win. And this is where you start to see Nike rhetoric through constructions like until we all win start to come to life and how we use our voice and platform in sport.
1: There's so and many think, nuggets of gold. There, Jorge, jump in because I, I saw your head nodding. I know you were real. Yeah, all the time. I was gonna say, you know, I was gonna say
2: two things, and um, on the second, I'm gonna turn over to you, Roz, and put you on the spot too. But no. you know, to Jarvis's point, we will not let Nike's commitment only be a moment. Uh, the, full stop. Full stop. It's been 18 months, a little over 18 months. Um, you know, since we started our Black community commitment, and after the atrocities of, of the murders that Jarvis just mentioned. And what we have seen is this work being led by Jarvis and his team and others across the company, just integrate across the company. And you start seeing signals of that success. So last week, I was on a phone, or a Zoom conversation with a county commissioner here. And she mentioned on her own that one of her constituent organizations, nonprofit organizations, Black-led organization had just received a grant from Nike's Black Community Commitment, and she wanted to ask me about it. It couldn't have been planned any better, but it just goes to show that when you do it from a grassroots perspective, that you're authentic in how you do it, and then you keep the consistency of the engagement there that's what's going to make this thing more than just a commitment, as, and as my friend Jarvis says, you know, there's the Black community commitment, which is the philanthropic dollars, but then there's our commitment to the Black community, right? Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful Venn diagram, but that commitment to the Black community and to all communities, back to the mission statement, is something that we're not going to let go away after a month or after a year. Um, but, you know, the second thing that's what I'm going to put you on the spot, Roz, is I think, you know, back to my points earlier about brands, it's telling those stories, telling those stories because it's, it's, it's about being a certain way. It's about doing the work, but then it's about talking about the work and inspiring others around the work. Can you talk a little bit about what that responsibility is like to tell that brand story around everything that we're doing across
3: purpose?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a privilege. Right. And to be able, I think for me, uh, to be at Nike at this moment in time, both for the company and then I think the broader world, it just, there's, it's, it's that iceberg, right? Where you're here and then underneath the water, there's so much. Um, And so how, what keeps me up at night, what gets me energized in the morning is I, I just, how do we shine a spotlight on all of the under the water iceberg moments that are, are there and exist and are starting to make a difference and are seeing real impact. Um, and and really the critical part, and maybe the most beautiful part about the specific role that I have is it, it's it, sure, it is about driving what Nike has committed to across our pillars of people, planet, and play, how we want to make a difference in our communities, how we want to show up, support, and be there for our communities. But more important, it's about those organizations. Um, It is about the people that are truly driving and making that difference and doing that work. And how do we, utilize the power and the spotlight of our brand the nike everybody knows it everybody wears it everybody loves it how do we use that power because there is such power there to shine that spotlight and lift up and leverage and i can i can think of so many organizations where it becomes so much more than just a check right it's so much more than just a yep you're doing great work here's a nod on the head high five it's the, how can we best practice share? How can you learn from us? Where can we help you? Is there a moment to spotlight your leader of an organization or the kids that are getting more active now on some of our Nike platforms so that you're showing up at an all-star game so that you're across some of our social media um, so that other people and you know whether it's capital A famous athletes like some of the jerseys behind your head Jarvis or you know just just be people that are out there that want to make a difference so they can learn more about it so um, you know that's that's what really puts the the pep in my step along with my, with my daily. Uh, I promise that I would, I would show my, let's like my little thing here, but everyone I'm holding up my can of Coke zero right now, which is sitting right next to me. Cause we love our little pep. Um, but yeah, it's that's, I think, I think that's the moment is just really being able and people are so hungry for content right now. I think that's yeah. like, you're all about this capital C content. And you're, you're seeing lots of new platforms emerging all the time where you can tell these stories and that people can, you know, I, I came up in a time in television news where you had to have broadcast and you had to have satellite access and you yeah. had to have camera and editing equipment. And now you can just use your phone and you can- <laughs> it's so amazing how the clip of technology has changed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's certainly an exciting time. And I, I really feel really proud that I get to tell the stories and, and shine a spotlight on the work that Jarvis you and then Jorge you were driving. Um, we've got a few minutes left and I wanna make sure that we shift over. We, we've solicited some questions from our scholar network. There are some great ones coming through. Um, Jarvis, I'll focus one to you first. Uh, Justine, who is a 2008 scholar asks, what strategies are you using to prioritize the hiring of more diverse teams? And I think that is so important to be able to share and learn and leverage. So we'd love just a few top line thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, we at Nike often uphold the mantra that sport has the power to change the world. And there have been such great learning coming out of sports and sports industries and the various leagues and federations and capital A athletes that we work with to drive this work. And I think that there's been a ton specifically around hiring that we can learn both best practices and then some areas to avoid that are so relevant to sport. And so specifically to, to where we focus, our partnership space is beyond critical to our ability to acquire great talent. When we look at our full talent philosophy at Nike, we want to position opportunities that go from hire to retire, meaning we have to think about hiring, promotion, and retention with the ability to attract and engage the right talent being such a critical prerequisite to to ensuring that talent feels actively connected to the brand. What that means is a clearly well-defined employee value proposition and candidate value proposition, or CVP. To do that, we partner with organizations like the Alumni Society, the National Society of Black Engineers, and so many others that serve the various communities that comprise those that are a part of our employee resource groups and that are connected to our continued commitment to look at diversity from a variety of different dimensions. By navigating these partnerships at a truly relational and not simply transactional level, we're able to understand what are the needs of these groups to grow and develop, and then how can we highlight to their candidate pools and their communities what the value add is for joining Nike and what we're attempting to create. But in addition to that, as with all things in sport, branding matters that much more, and so we have to look for unique ways where we position Nike as a friendly hiring employer. I think our connection, for example, with the human rights campaign and now entering our 20th year of participation and engagement receiving a score of 100 on their corporate equality index, what that means for LGBTQ plus communities who are desiring spaces of psychological safety in the workplace is so relevant. It's not simply forging the partnerships with Out for Undergrad out in tech or out in equal, because the talent will see Nike as a strong brand anyway. But how do we create a connected commitment to them that the culture to which they will be entering is one that not only supports them, doesn't just accept or advocate for them, but truly celebrates them and enables authenticity, which is one of our critical value drivers, to come through. From there, though, we have to obsess every stage of the hiring process It's not enough to find and identify pipelines. We have to think about who are we positioning to interview the talent? Are there areas of our process, whether through job descriptions, interview questions, or offer letters, that may be allowing bias to enter the process? And then in the spirit of being more than programmatic, but sharply focused on systemic solutions, we have to understand how do we redefine elements of our systems, tools, and processes so that it can truly better serve our teammates in a way that's going to be productive, going to catalyze their experience, and actually focus on that celebration. And so it's a really powerful ecosystem that my team leads in direct partnership with our global talent acquisition organization to ensure that the experiences of every single talent are positioned with the same centricity, that we want to be our consumer experience every time they enter a nike store
1: it makes me feel so good to know that your team is stacked against this work and thinking about things holistically um I think and just about- a quick
2: proof point uh on what jarvis was saying and back to the black community commitment it's our own people so when we stood up this commitment 18 months ago we said we needed to hire people and we need to hire people with lived experience in the cities that we wanted to impact to be able to drive this work forward. So we hired seven teammates. In the 18 months since, we've now had two of those teammates get promoted and move on to other roles. And so back to what Jarvis was talking about earlier about congruence and what you hear him say about how do we hire, how do we retain, how do we coach, how do we develop, how do we promote? we see two of them just in this one example um, that I'm sharing with you today. And it's so powerful because it just goes to show that everything we know to be true, you bring people in, you provide them the tools, you've got their back, you give them the feedback, they will continue to grow.
1: Yeah, grow and shine and just kill it in their roles. And it's so amazing to see. Jorge, here's a great question from David, who's also a 2008 scholar. Um, What tangible role should companies play in shaping the world of tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) David,
2: if you've got the answer to that one, please drop me an email and let me know, because that would be be incredible. You know, I think... um, There's so much that's changed in the world. I mean, just in the last two years that we've been living through COVID and what we see is that business has a role to play, continues to play a role in shaping society. And I think what we also have to be mindful of is that we can't be government and we can't be civil society. They have their roles to play. But in the same way that leadership changes, that talent changes, the world is changing. And so we think about what those partnerships look like. And so when I think about the impact that Nike has in the world, you know, we talk about our products and the innovation and our brand voice to be able to continue inspiring and innovating. But we also employ 76,000 people around the world. We also pay taxes around the world. We also contribute to public policy conversations around the world. And we've gotta you know, be nuanced enough to know that there are so many challenges in the world today that if we try to stand for all of them or do something about everything, we're gonna make an impact in none of them. And so for us, it's really important to you know, articulate, these are our priorities. This is what we're gonna stand for when it comes to purpose. And you know, Raj, you talked about people, planet and play. But this sharp focus on everything in the DEI and belonging space, everything in the sustainability space, everything in community and getting kids active, because at the end of the day, as Jarvis mentioned, we believe in the power of sport to move the world forward. That's authentic to who we are. It's been the case for the last 50 years. It will be the case for the next 50 years and beyond. And so we've got to attach and ground everything to that. When I think about my world in you know, public policy and geopolitics and everything, you think about what those connections look like among people, you know, whether it's Europe and Latin America or China and Africa. And you know, what it comes down to is a couple of things, there, there, there's government connection, diplomacy, foreign affairs, which in many places is broken right now as the world has become more and more politicized there's there's education and people to people exchanges much more difficult during covid when we've all been behind a zoom screen to be able to have those experiences and so the last two are the ones that you know we play in even more so which is one sport because if you think about sport sport breaks barriers i mean there have been conflicts that have been put on pause to watch a world cup match that's how powerful sport is And if you haven't seen it, Google Nelson Mandela's quote about the power of sport and how it speaks to youth. It is so inspirational. And then the other is business and commerce. You know, we are a global company, global trade, global supply chains. This is critical for success, not just for one country, but for all countries. And so, you know, to answer the question very specifically, we focus on those two areas, the role of business and the role of sport, and how to connect those societies, connect those cultures, connect those countries, and the betterment of society as a
3: whole. You know, Jorge, I'll, I'll bridge on that, kind of bring everything together. I actually just wrote a paper not long ago as part of my grad <laughs> program um, on, on Mandela and the period of apartheid and the impact of sport. And one of the pieces that I noticed in doing the research that I found to be quite powerful, Mandela gave that speech that you're referencing at the World Glorious Awards on May 25th, 2000. Exactly, exactly to the date, 20 years prior to the murder of George Floyd. When we think about the impact that a company like Nike can make to use our voice in bridging those topics, that racial and social equity can be directly impacted by the drive and work that we have in our connection to sport, it's so beyond critical to what we do. And I think accountability Is It matters so much more in that space because the reverberating impact that companies like Nike have, where I know you hear this all the time, Jorge, people call you from other companies. Hey, what is Nike doing in this regard? Are you all going to comment on this? What's your position? Other companies look to brands like Nike to be the thought starter and thought partner in a lot of this work. And so recognizing what that accountability is and showing up and using the critical areas of focus that you talk about, Jorge, to uh, serve the world is going to be that much more important.
1: I feel like I want to have another two hours of this conversation and I know what both of your schedules are because I have some, some privilege and insight into that. So I'm not going to keep you that much longer, but I, I will just, before we run into some fast five, which is the classic way that our Coke Scholar sit podcast just ends things, I want to take a moment to say thank you to both of you, just for you both being you, um, for being inspiring, for being my friend for being a mentor and a colleague and um, community builders. I think, I think about all of the intersection ways that our lives are connected. And um, I feel so grateful to have you both in my life. And I'm just, I feel so honored to be able to have this conversation with you today. So let's end with some fun. Jorge, what is your favorite Nike shoe? You know,
2: I believe in the power of the and. Um, so there's not just one Nike shoe. I'll, I, I brought two of them with me one is the air jordan um, and you see this is the atl edition so i keep these front and center Um, uh, but then the air force one as well i mean the air force one is one of the most comfortable shoes that i love right now it's raining cats and dogs outside so right now it's anything that's waterproof
3: is my favorite shoe. how about you jarvis You know, I'm similar to Jorge with the and, so I got to give you Nike, Jordan, and Converse. Nike is the Zoom freak one. It's Giannis' shoe that pays homage to one of my favorite movies coming to America. You'll notice a trend here quickly. Jordan, it's uh, the Air Jordan 11, the Space Jams. Like, I grew up with that movie. It was part of my childhood. So the connection there is quite powerful. And then we did a collection with Converse where Tom and Jerry did a takeover of the Chuck Taylor. And so the, the... Hi, Chuck Taylor, Tom and Jerry's. I love it, I love it. How about co- favorite Coke product, Jarvis? Oh, Fanta, pineapple and strawberry. Yum, tropical
1: too, it kind of goes, if, if anyone can see your your wonderful Nike, <laughs> jacket that you're wearing a tropical theme to it, so I love it. How about you, Jorge? Uh,
2: I'm laughing about pineapple because I remember when pineapple was launched at, at Coca-Cola and I worked on that project. Um, Full circle, so, see, I'll full circle. Yeah, now. so here we go, Total Beverage Company. I still remember my talking points from Coca-Cola. I had my Simply apple juice in the morning, I have that with breakfast every day, <laughs> uh, my Dasani water, but uh, I really love the OG Coca-Cola, and I love that it's in the little mini can now, because at 46, my metabolism is not what it was at 26.
1: Sometimes you just want a little bit of that, of that deliciousness uh not not the full can i love it what um, about
3: for you ross i t-
1: i told you coke zero all the way Hold nope. it. it's my classic it's my go-to i have it every day um i go old school with my nikes and kit cortez's it's a it's a you know dress them up dress them down always feel good um, I'll I'll share one more about what's an what's an app that I can't live without. An app that I cannot live without is my Google Maps, especially as I'm learning the Portland area and navigating new streets for the first time. How about you, Jarvis? Favorite app?
3: Task Rabbit, hands down. <laughs> yep.
1: Share share the love. Get some good help and expertise. How about Absolutely.
2: you? Absolutely. Um, you know, right now it's this mindless game called Two Dots. Um, that I can, if I have five minutes, I can actually clear my head and just play that game, uh, is, uh, is my, is my current go-to app.
1: I also know that you're a Wordle fan, which I have to tell yes. you, like, I have been filming <laughs> the Wordle game lately, but it's because my 10 year old daughter is so weirdly good at it as like, she's gotten like the right word on the first or second try so many times. And like, yeah, my, my scores are way up, but it's all because of my 10 year old,
3: Wow. Um,
1: one one last fun question in this and these not quite fast fives but um what's something surprising on your on your iTunes or your Spotify list what's a song that's surprising? Jarvis
3: I am a huge swifty. I don't talk about it a lot but I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan actually. And so you belong with me is definitely played at least once a week in this household. A plus choice. <laughs> So I've
2: got three kids, 11, nine and six, and they have taken over all the music in the house. And uh, kids' pop is what you will find playing more often than not, which which hurts me sometimes. So uh, every once in a while, I'll pull up some uh, YouTube videos of, for example, the Live Aid concert with Queen, and I'll make all three kids watch it so that they can appreciate real music um, not that kids' pop isn't real music, it's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> it's
1: a, yeah, it's funny when you have those full circle moments. I feel like my Spotify and, and Apple II iTunes playlists have gone very heavy on the on the Disney and the Disney front now. But yeah. I'll say something maybe not so surprising, but the the Super Bowl halftime performance show reignited my deep love of all things early aughts rap and hip hop. And so you know, I'll go.
2: I'll go Mary Jay and Dr. Dre, like, for, forever. Um, All day. Snoop, Snoop Dogg came to Brown on spring weekend to do a <laughs> concert when I was there. Uh, so that's, you know, early to mid-90s. He, 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 he was doing that. And watching that, I was just like, wow, it took me back to my four years in Providence.
1: Oh, my God. What an amazing performer performance to have at the height of your university undergrad experience. I'm sure there were lots of stories that we will save for a, the, the um, After Hours podcast. Next Something uh, that's not recorded. Exactly. Uh, we'll have to just call Jorge directly for that one. But thank you both, Jarvis, Jorge. Thank you for listening to The SIP, everyone. So enjoyed this conversation. Um, and it, you guys are just the best, the best of the best. Thank you so much.
3: Thank Rod. Thanks, thanks, thanks
0: Coach family. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of season three of The Sith, featuring Jorge Casimiro, Jarvis Sam, and Roslyn Kennedy. For links to their full bios and other things they discuss, check out our show notes or visit coca colascholarsfoundation.org. And if you have an extra minute, we would love for you to leave us a review, rate the podcast, and subscribe so you'll be the first to hear new episodes. Tune in for episode two in two weeks, where three scholars with careers in filmmaking, music, and screenwriting will discuss storytelling and the arts. Personally, I can't wait to hear more. See you next time on The Sip.